Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery Podcast. It's a place where we explore the world of horror and film, literature, and pop culture. Hello, everyone. My name is Bruce Markison, and I'm joined, as always, by producer and co-host Tracy Asteria for our latest Ghostly Gallery Podcast. Tracy, welcome to the program. How have you been? I've been great, Bruce. Things have been going really well. How about yourself? Just back from vacation and raring to go, raring to put out a series of uh, programs over these next several weeks. We're very glad, Tracy, to have with us today uh, someone who is not only an excellent writer, but has tremendous energy as a speaker. And uh, because of that, I'm not going to waste any more time. We're going to get right to him. His name is Mark Dewidziak. Mark is the author of 25 books. And the latest is Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. It's been doing exceptionally well for St. Martin's Press. Uh, 245 pages about Edgar Allan Poe's life. Also alternating chapters about his still rather mysterious death. It's a wonderful book, and I'm glad to hear that it is commercially doing well. Uh, Mark, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm always ready to talk about my friend, Mr. Poe. So, Mark, you're known in a lot of circles as a scholar of Mark Twain. Uh, you're also an expert on one of my favorites, Rod Serling in The Twilight Zone. And you're also incredibly accomplished as a film and television critic. Now, in terms of your writing pursuits, uh, something a little bit different, even though the subject of Poe has been with you for a long time. This is really the first time you've uh, written something, a full-length biography about him. So where exactly did your interest in writing full-length about Poe come from? It actually uh, didn't come from me. Uh, it came from, sometimes it takes somebody else to point out the obvious. That's true about when your writing is done, and it's true sometimes even before you start. And in this case, it was before I started. Uh, I had done a book on The Twilight Zone, as you mentioned, for uh, St. Martin's Press, and it had done well, and it had done well enough that when you sign a contract with a publisher, they there's a clause that you owe them uh, the option on your next book. That doesn't mean they're going to do your next book. It means you give them the choice, the mm -hmm. option as to whether or not uh, they're going to publish your next book. So uh, the, the Twilight Zone book had done well, and we had the inevitable discussion. I was talking with my editor at St. Martin's, and I hit him with what I thought was my best can't-miss idea for a follow-up book. And the only problem was it missed. It missed uh, barely. He wasn't the least bit interested in my can't-miss idea. Hmm. And he countered with an idea, and I didn't like his idea. And we kind of went back and forth like that. Uh, over the course of a, of, a, of a telephone conversation. And we were just about to table the conversation and say, well, well, we'll pick this up on another day. And just as we were about to get off the phone, he said, what about Edgar Allan Poe? And I about dropped the phone because Poe has been a constant in my life, even before the age when most people get Poe for the first time. Most people get Poe are introduced to Poe in uh, junior high school, usually right around about the seventh grade we give kids the telltale heart or the raven. You start to get Poe right around the seventh grade, uh, which is a great age to get him, by the way. 
And then he's a constant. You get him all the way through junior high school, high school. And then if you take uh, literature courses in the college, you're going to get him again. So Poe is this sort of constant. But I actually started reading Poe and was aware of Poe. I won't say as early as the age of seven, because at the age of, that's the age of seven was when I became a horror fan, when I saw what I considered my first horror movie. And uh, but if you become a horror fan that young, it doesn't take you long to become aware that there was this guy named Edgar Allan Poe who was incredibly important to the genre. Mm -hmm. So I had been reading Poe even before junior high school and I uh, author that I've carried throughout my entire life. And when he said Poe, I kind of asked him what made you say that? And he said, well, it seems to check a lot of your boxes. And this is what I mean about not seeing the obvious. I, 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 it does? And he said, well, yeah. <laughs> You've written on a lot of horror topics and things that fall on the spooky side of the streets. You've got books on Dracula, Kolshak, The Night Stalker. Uh, you've edited books by Richard Matheson. You did the Twilight Zone book. Uh, you've written literary biography before. You've written about a major 19th century author with Mark Twain. Poe was a critic most of his life. You were a critic most of your life. How does this not check all your boxes? And I, it was really kind of, oh, yeah, I guess it does. And hmm. But then it became sort of the discussion of what kind of book he wanted. And I suspected I knew what kind of book he wanted because... It seems like, you know how every couple of years there seems to be one of these books which arrives on the noon stage, almost like clockwork. Every two years we get another book which purports to have solved the mystery of who Jack the Ripper is. <laughs> and I think there's another one on the way. Uh, we seem to get that book every couple of years. And I think we're up to about 13, 14 suspects at this point as to who Jack the Ripper might have been. And we're no closer to knowing now than we ever were. So I suspected he wanted a book like that on Poe, that it would dissolve uh, the mystery of Poe's death. And that's where I kind of said, hold on, back up the hearse. Uh, if you are talking about that kind of book, then go find yourself another lunatic, because this one's driving away. <laughs> uh, first off, it's a cold case. Let, let me just state the obvious here. Uh, there were, there's, there's no, there was no death certificate. There's no surviving soft tissue that can be tested forensically. There was no autopsy. Uh, and the witnesses that do exist to Poe's death are tremendously unreliable. They change their testimony, not once, but in some cases, two or three times. So the record around Poe's death isn't really a record at all. It's 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 a, it's a hodgepodge of information and uh, and speculation, and things we think we know instead of what we actually know. So I said, if you're if you're looking for that kind of book, I think it would be incredibly irresponsible to say that you can definitively solve the mystery of Poe's death. But I'll tell you what I will write. I'll write you a biography of Poe because I'm much more interested in how he lived than how he died. I will write you a biography of Poe that examines his life through the filter of the mystery of his death. And if I can come up with what I think is a compelling, convincing, and intriguing argument as to how he died, I will present it. But I will stop short of saying that I can prove it because I don't think it is provable. So that's a very long answer to your question, but that is how I ended up writing this book. 
Oh, wow. uh, we love long answers, by the way. So uh, okay, well, you're going to get them from me. Then, then <laughs> feel free to keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> Just as an aside, you mentioned your first horror movie. Do you do you remember what it was? Of course, I remember what it was. At seven years, I grew up in New York, and in my uh, misspent youth, uh, the entertainment that we were given while I was growing up in the, in the New York area was. There was no Disney Channel. You have to remember, this was uh, ancient times. So there was no Disney Channel. There was no Nickelodeon. There were, there were no channels that were specifically designed for kid viewing. So they gave us what, what, what did pass for children's viewing <laughs> was the entertainment of our parents and in some cases our grandparents and the earliest television that I watched were uh, was comedy and in, in most specifically comedy teams, mm -hmm. uh, the Three Stooges. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, these were constant. Uh, they were always on the, the, the local stations in New York when I was growing up. And this was the earliest influence. So my earliest influence was actually comedy. Uh, and I had seen a fierce amount of it by the age of seven. And uh, at the age of seven, a station in New York, the dear old WPIX Channel 11, mm. showed a movie called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. And nice. you now you have to know that I was there for the Abbott and Costello half of that title. I was not there. I did not know what a Frankenstein was. I had never seen a, a, a horror movie. Just the fact that it was an Abbott and Costello movie was enough for me. But in that movie, of course, playing Count Dracula for only the uh, second time on film, because people think that he did it like 40, 50 times. But the second and last of his two performances of Dracula on film is Bela Lugosi. And Lugosi's performance in particular was, was mesmerizing to me. And by the time that movie was over, I had been converted into a horror fan. And after that, I spent, you know, every week I would get the, uh, the, the supplement out of the, the Sunday newspaper that showed the TV listings. And I would scour the TV listings for a, another universal horror film, a 1950s movie with giant creatures destroying a major city or uh, a horror science fiction movie from the, the 50s or a hammer horror film that it was just starting to show up. And I was watching things like The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, uh, things like that. By 67, I had added Dark Shadows to that, uh, to that, mm. that mix. So this was kind of the education. Uh, you know, the, all 13 of the original Aurora monster models are over here uh, on my, uh, the, the, the bookcase behind me in oh, my wow. office. Uh, because I got my first, my, my first birthday after seeing that movie, and that was Dracula, the, the, the Aurora Monster Model. So this was, uh, I guess you could have called me, we didn't have this term in the 1960s. This is sort of a modern term, but we, we call people who had my childhood, you know, getting the monster magazines like Famous Monsters and Castle of Frankenstein, watching those universe, getting the Aurora Monster Models. Today, we call uh, this type of creature a monster kid. You know, well, we were just horror fans. We didn't have that, yeah. that, that term. Now, I guess you would say, you know, yeah, I was a monster kid. Uh, so I, it was the perfect preparation for me to gravitate towards Poe when I started to read more and more seriously as I got older. So, uh, so the attraction to Poe was kind of set really almost because of that first meeting with, with a horror movie at the age of seven. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that, haven't we, Tracy, in our early shows? 
Yes, we have. Again, it was an excellent movie. So that's a that's so great to know. That was your first experience to horror. Well, the, and you know the the great thing about that movie is that uh, it 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 works as a comedy and it works as a horror film, but it does not work. It, it, the horror is played straight, mm -hmm. and the comedy is left to the comedy team of Bud and Lou. So it's not like Young Frankenstein, where the intent is to be a spoof mm -hmm. on, on 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 horror. The horror, the reason that movie works so well is because the horror is played absolutely straight and the monsters are not made the butt of jokes. They're there to heighten the sense of danger that's in that movie. So that's one of the reasons I think it turned me into a horror film. If the first movie I had seen at that age, and which quite impossible because it wouldn't have been made yet, was something like Young Frankenstein it would have been a different experience. Hmm. So um, I got to love Young Frankenstein when I saw it because that's a movie for people who already know all those movies and love all those movies. It's, it's, it's almost homage to, to those movies, the way it's made. But, you know, I, I, my, my daughter, uh, I introduced my daughter. Uh, she was growing up to all this, uh, this stuff. And uh, on, on consecutive Fridays, we watched the Frankenstein movies, Friday nights when she was young. So we watched Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And then the following Friday, we watched Son of Frankenstein. So she could get a basic education in the Frankenstein movies. And uh, as we were watching uh, Son of Frankenstein, it, my wife had come home from wherever she was that night. And it was one of the scenes with Lionel Atwell as the inspector with the wooden arm. Mm. And she walked in and she started to laugh because, <laughs> of course, she was thinking about Kenny Kenneth Mars in, in Young Frankenstein playing the inspector. And I said, get out, get out. <laughs> you know, she can watch Young Frankenstein once she's done with these movies, once she understands these first, because if you watch that first, you forever ruin those movies. You right. cannot watch the Hermit scene in Bride of Frankenstein if you've seen Young Frankenstein first. So you've got to, you've, you've got to know where it comes from first. So anyway, uh, again, another long answer to your question, but. So a an... Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein indirectly leads to Edgar Allan Poe. Your publisher is initially maybe hinting that he wants you to do something strictly on the death of Poe. You convince him, no, we're going to do something alternating chapters, death and life. Um, but this still poses challenges for you, even though you're looking back at his life. This is somebody who died nearly 175 years ago. You have no firsthand sources to interview. Obviously, they're all gone. And there's maybe not a great deal of detailed information readily available on somebody who, who lived in the 1800s. So you're still facing a lot of challenges. Absolutely. And, and I knew I was going to take some chances with this book um, for any number of reasons. One, we have had a lot of written about Poe. Thank goodness. There's, there's a, there's a very big scholarship built up around Poe. And I think that that's, I have to acknowledge that I do acknowledge it in the book. You, you, you are standing on the shoulders of a lot of people starting in the 1940s with the Arthur Hobson Quinn biography, which is the first to uh, start to set the record straight about Poe. I, I knew that there have been also a lot of traditional biographies written about Poe, that it, that it written from a how you're supposed to write a biography. But by trade, I'm not a, a biographer. By, I spend most of my life as a journalist. I write books, 
but I spent 43 years in, in, in the journalism field. And I cannot pretend to be the type of writer I'm not. So I'm going to attack a biography uh, using my skill set, my tools, and not pretend that I am an academic or a scholar, because I'm not. I, I, I don't make any pretenses towards that. This book is very much the study of a writer by a writer. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was I felt as if Poe could not have been the person we have made of him. The person who wrote those stories we all love. It's impossible. I've known a lot of horror writers over the years. I've known and interviewed a lot of horror writers, and I've done some horror fiction myself. And it didn't match. Something was off. I've interviewed Stephen King, Robert Block, the author of Psycho, Ray Bradbury, Anne Rice, Clive Barker, Dean Koontz. Hmm. And I've also interviewed directors like Wes Craven. And it didn't match up to the caricature we've made of Poe. And we have made a caricature of it. We, we've all loved that caricature. And the caricature is this sickly guy with hollowed out eyes and a pale complexion. And he's sitting up in an attic somewhere, surrounded by cobwebs and dust. And he's got a raven perched on his shoulder. And somewhere in the dust, there is a red-eyed black cat prowling around. And with quill pen in one hand and a bottle of cognac at easy reach, Poe is spinning out these horror tales and these fever dreams, probably aided by alcohol and drugs. And that's the stereotype of Poe. Hmm. And the truth is, there's not a bit of truth in it. Poe was nothing like that. And I knew instinctively he couldn't have been like that because of knowing all of those people who've written horror. It psychologically didn't match up. And indeed, the more you learn about Poe, the more you learn that that is a stereotype. It's like a funhouse mirror reflection of who he was. Hmm. First off, when Poe died, he was only 40 years old. He, he, he died in 1849. He was only 40. And when Poe died, he left behind a massive amount of writing. And I always loved people who, when I was writing the book, and they would ask me what I was working on, and I'd say, I'm working on a biography of Edgar Allan Poe. They'd get almost this beatific look on their face, almost as if they'd been transported into another realm. And they would say something along the lines of, oh, Edgar Allan I love Edgar Allan Poe. And then they would say, and I almost could, my lips would almost move with them when they would say the next thing, I've read everything he's written. And I never challenged it, but I, my mind was saying, really? You've read all 17 volumes of his collected work. And that's where the shock comes in. Because when the first sort of really scholarly edition of his collected works was done, in the early part of the 20th century, they filled 17 volumes. Oh my and, and there's more because we've discovered more since then. And that much of it is horror. That much of it. Now that's what we read. See, what's kept his reputation, fame has been a double-edged sword for Mr. Poe. On the one hand, that small group of stories, the small group of horror and mystery stories that he wrote 
have kept him going and have kept him alive and have kept him the most read American author around the world. And there's not even a close second choice. And then one of the most recognized writers in the world. But those small group of stories have come to define him too and have limited our view of who Poe was. The real Edgar Allan Poe was athletic. We don't think of Poe as athletic, but he could win any jumping contest. He moved. He had been in the military. He'd been a good soldier. Hmm. He moved and walked with a direct military gait. He was a very careful craftsman. Yes, alcohol was a problem, but it's not the problem that most people think it was. Most people think that Poe spent a good deal of his lifetime battling the bottle. And you can't live to be only 40 years old and leave behind that much writing of that high quality that could fill 17 volumes and be drunk all the time. And he wasn't. He had long, long periods of sobriety, 12, 14 months where he never touched the stuff. Hmm. And during that time, he was a very dedicated, prolific, and careful craftsman. Uh, and he wrote in all sorts of genres. In his lifetime, uh, again, this is something most people don't know about Poe. In his lifetime, Poe is not best known as a short story writer or as a horror writer. And he wouldn't have even known what that term meant, by the way. But he was not best known as a poet. He was best known in his lifetime as a critic, as a literary critic, and a very fierce one. He hmm. was the uh, one of the leading literary critics uh, for major magazines in his lifetime. And he was so harsh as a critic. His standards were so high. His nickname was the Tomahawk Man. Hmm. And there's no question that was the thing he was best known for. So he was known first as a critic, secondarily as a poet, and third as a short story writer. Our time, we have reversed that order. We know him first as a short story writer, secondarily as a poet, and third, if you know it at all, as, as, a, as a critic. But that only scratches the surface of the number of things that Poe wrote. One of the things that I discovered in interviewing and getting to know people who do horror, actors, writers, directors, they have one thing in common. And it's the first thing we deny Poe. And that is a sense of humor. And in fact, you know, Stephen King, who I interviewed, uh, is one of the people interviewed for the book, basically said that a sense of humor is, is essential. It's, it's, a, it's a basic tool of any horror writer. And without a sense of humor, you'd go crazy if you wrote this kind of thing without it. In humor and horror are twins. They're flip sides of the same coin. They're both the metaphoric devices we use to examine and attack difficult subjects. They're the way we make sense of subjects which are difficult to talk about. Uh, and, and, and they're always about big themes. You know, they always play things really, really at, at a top level. So horror writers that I've met, you know, people like uh, Robert Block and Harlan Ellison and, uh, and Stephen King, they're very funny people. They're, they're all essentially funny. And I thought, well, Poe had to have had a sense of humor. And guess what? He did. Mm -hmm. He was very witty. He was very engaging. And he wrote as much humor as he did horror. That comes as a surprise to most people, that he wrote a lot of satires and hoaxes and humorous pieces. We just don't read those pieces anymore. And that's what, so, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. 
I wanted to get at the real writer, the real guy who wrote these stories we love so much. And he's not the guy who is the funhouse mirror reflection. We've done that through the pop culture. We and, and it's fun. Look, I, I love that Poe too. Do I have a Poe action figure sitting on my <laughs> desk? Yes. Do I have Poe t-shirts? Absolutely. But it's kind of interesting. If, if you start, like you go back to like 1960, that amazing decade where everything seemed to get turned inside out and upside down. And, you know, it's, it's this wonderfully turbulent decade. And, you know, everything goes into the 60s, one thing, and comes out something else. We, uh, the United States went in as one kind of country at the beginning of the 60s. And they come out of, we come out of a very different country because of, of what happens in the 60s. It's a crucible decade. Well, if you start in 1960, if you have a magic time machine, you can stand, you look at, there are two writers, American writers, who are universally recognized. What I mean by that is you could actually show a picture of them to somebody and they'd have a shot at knowing who they were. And, and, and that's Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe. Now, I mean, first off, just stop, stop there and consider that because writers are pretty anonymous. Can you imagine the average person having any shot at all at knowing what Herman Melville looks like? Can you imagine somebody trying to pick Longfellow out of a police lineup? It's impossible. You know, this is this is this just doesn't happen with writers. But Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe's fame had achieved such a level by 1960 that we not only knew their stories and their names, we knew them. We recognized them. Now, again, right. we knew them, the stereotype. We knew Twain as the guy in the white suit with the cigar and the shaggy hair and, and, and Poe as the sickly guy in the dark suit. So it was kind of like a, images in black and white. Now, what happened was their, their reputations were also based on stereotypes. Poe was the gloomy genius, melancholy genius, and Twain was sort of the avuncular grandfatherly man of letters, uh, the, the, the boys author, the family author, the, the sort of genial wit. As we progressed through the 60s, something remarkable happened, which was all of Twain's suppressed writing started to come out. His daughter died in 1960. And all of the writings she feared would hurt his reputation, enhanced his reputation. And we enlarged Twain throughout the 60s. We started to see, oh, here's this incredible social critic. Here's this guy who had so much to say about politics and religion. And we didn't lose the other Twain because of that. It's not like we lost the witty guy, the funny guy. We just sort of, he just kept getting bigger and bigger. Poe comes out of the 60s, the same guy he went in. The 60s changes everything except Edgar Allan Poe. Hmm. 1970, Poe is still the same guy. He's still the guy who wrote The Telltale Heart. He's still the guy who wrote The Cask of Amontillado and The Raven. And I think sometimes people are a little afraid of enlarging our view of Poe because I think they're going to be afraid we're going to lose the fun Poe. Yeah. And we're not. It's no more than we lost that Twain, the, the, the other Twain, is no more than by enlarging our view are we going to lose the fun guy. He will forever and always be that guy because there is a reason those small group of stories continue to make his reputation. He was really good at it. And it's not like there weren't a lot of people at the same era writing horror. There was a big, the magazines were full of them. The magazines loved 
playing to the masses with very garish stories of murder and horror and ghosts and castles and all of this. And the magazines are just full of them. Poe is just miles ahead of them all. He was, he was so much knew what he was doing in this genre. So there's a reason that these small stories uh, have kept his reputation alive. And it, it's also the reason we'll never lose that Poe. But there's it's vital that we understand that that's not the guy who wrote the stories. The guy who wrote the stories was an incredibly careful artist. The guy who wrote the stories was a very sober, exacting person. And that's how you write horror. Mm -hmm. That's how you do it. And it didn't happen because he was tinged with madness. You know, when I was in first came across Poe in the seventh grade and the teachers forgave, gave us Poe for the first time, a lot of the teachers, a lot of my teachers and a lot of teachers of that generation encouraged us to confuse Poe with his unreliable narrators. Well, this one of the reasons he was so good at this was because, you know, he was tinged with madness himself. Uh, that he he is the guy in the raven talking to that bird. He is the guy in the telltale heart talking about planned murder. And that shortchanges Poe as an artist criminally because he wasn't any of that. Yeah. You know, that's the stereotype. And you have to know who the real writer was. So anyway, that's one. If you're asking, you know, like what really drove you to write this book, that's it. That's that That would be it is to say, you know, I, I really want to reclaim the real guy. Even if the only thing you want to reclaim is the real horror writer, you have to understand that the, the stereotype doesn't work. Tracy, I think I may have cut you off a few moments ago. You want to ask a question, Mark? Oh, my goodness. Um, it just it I was just curious when he was talking about his his first horror movie and his experience with that and how he introduced his daughter. This is just kind of off topic. But is is your daughter into horror? She is. Right um, I, I think she's more into fantasy than she is into horror. Okay. Like a lot of people of her generation. Uh, she's not a hardcore horror person, but she certainly loves uh, classic horror. She loves the universal film. She loves uh, shows like Night Gallery and the Twilight Zone. Uh, so yes, I mean, she, she, she is into it. And a lot of the, the things that I've done came about by sharing this, all this stuff from my youth with her. Mm -hmm. The Twilight Zone book did. I mean, in essence, we don't. I don't get to Poe without the Twilight Zone book. That's, you know, there's always stepping right. stones. And the Twilight Zone book came about from sharing my love of that show with her when she was about to turn uh, uh, 15, 16. Uh, we, she had seen a lot of classic TV at that time, but she hadn't really watched the Twilight Zone. So I thought it was time for her to, to experience that. And we did a forced march through all 156 episodes of the Twilight Zone. Oh my goodness! And after you know, and and you have to know so something about the, the it's it, Twilight Zone is my favorite show of all time. Mm -hmm. It is with, without question my favorite. I've written books on three series: Twilight Zone, Night Stalker, and Columbo. Right. And um, you know, I had set out to write the history of the Twilight Zone uh, when I was in my. Uh, still in my 20s. I, I, I had written my first book, which was a slice of theater history. And that was published in 1982. And when people said, what's your next book going to be? I said, well, I'm going to write the history of the Twilight Zone. Why not me? It's mm. my favorite show of all time. And I love the show. And I'd even interviewed some of the people who'd been on it, two of the people 
who had been at the theater that I'd written about, uh, Claude Aikens and Fritz Weaver had each been in two episodes of The Twilight Zone. And Donna Douglas, who was on the, from the Beverly Hillbillies, who had mm -hmm. done a wonderful Twilight Zone episode called Via the Beholder. Uh, she came to town to shoot a commercial and I ran down to the shooting site and I interviewed her about her being in The Twilight Zone. I did enough work to kind of kid myself that I was gonna write this book. Um, and But I was living in, in Upper East Tennessee at the time and working at a newspaper there never sort of saying to myself, maybe this isn't the best place to be writing a book on the Twilight Zone, or if you need access to the stuff you would need to write that book. And uh, a few months later, I walked into a bookstore, and there it was, uh, Mark Scott Secree's The Twilight Zone Companion. He'd written the book that I wanted to write, and it was incredible. It was, he really done such a good, I couldn't even get me mad about it. He'd done such a good job. Hmm. And that's when I set my sights on Columbo. I said, okay, well, if I can't do The Twilight Zone, then I will write a similar book on Columbo. So that book was published in 89. And then I was going to write a book about Dashiell Hammett, a mystery, because I just done a mystery thing, and I was going to do another mystery topic. And that's when a publisher stepped forward and said, I love your Columbo book. Have you ever thought about writing the same type of book about the Night Stalker? Oh, wow. And I said, well, I loved the nights. I became a journalist because of Carl Kolschak. I became, he was, he was my hero. You know, I said, I would, I always wanted it, but I never knew that there was a publisher crazy enough to publish that book. And he said, well, I'm <laughs> crazy enough to publish that book. So that book was published in 91 as Night Stalking. And that led to editing uh, works by, uh, a collection of works by Richard Matheson and for the friendship with Richard Matheson. That led to the Dracula book. And all of that was getting me back to the Twilight Zone. And I didn't see it. Because, again, you have to step back and see where the forces of things pushed you. And, you know, by sharing the Twilight Zone with my daughter, finally, every time we finished a Twilight Zone episode, I would turn to her and jokingly say, let that be a lesson to you. You know, because there was, and then finally, kind of after several weeks of this, because I can run a joke into the ground with the best of them, uh, the penny finally dropped. And I thought, each one of these is a, a life lesson. Each one of these is a moral. Uh, I could do uh, a book extracting like the parables of the Twilight Zone and call it everything I need to know I learned in the Twilight Zone. And I'll finally get my Twilight. 35 years later, I'll get my Twilight Zone book. And that's exactly what happened. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't shared this with my daughter. So, um, and that leads, leads to Poe. So there's a grand sweep designed to all this. Yeah. It's just that I was, you know, you think you're in charge. You know, you think, oh, I'm the captain of my ship. I'm making the decisions, you know. And then you later, you look and you see life pushed you into into certain places where you needed to be. I wasn't ready to write the, the, the Twilight Zone book at that age. You know, I was at that point. And then if it hadn't been for the Twilight Zone book, there wouldn't have been an Edgar Allan Poe book. So, so, Mark, does your daughter share the love of Edgar Allan Poe with you? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, and my wife and I perform. Uh, we do a, a two-person show of, of poems and stories uh, by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, so, you know, she she's sort of grown up with it, uh, being uh, indoctrinated, shall we say. Uh, so she knows she knows Poe. She knows Twain. She knows Dickens. She knows, uh, <laughs> you know, she, she knows all of that stuff. You know, and then, then she grew up of a generation, you know, that had uh, the Harry Potter books and things like that. So she grew up in a generation where that kind of thing resonates all in Harry Potter. Mm. You know, you all of That's those, right. you know, somebody gave J.K. Rowling some very good books when she was small because you can see G.K. Chesterton and Rudyard Kipling and Dickens and just in the names you can see Dickens in all of that. Mm. 
So, you know, so, so there's a lot of resonance there, you know, all the way around, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, I, probably, you know, and, and, and one of the things I'll say about the writing of this book is I said before that there'd been a lot of traditional biographies of Poe and there have been. So I just didn't think we needed another traditional biography of Poe. And I also thought that Poe took chances in what he did, that if I was going to do this book and I was going to uh, do something in the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe, I would need to take some chances. So um, I, I did go off the high diving board a couple of times in this book. And uh, each time, you know, you go off the high diving board with a book, you just kind of hope there's water in the pool when you get down there. Um, you're always taking sort of a chance. And, you know, the first chance I took was doing interviews. Uh, well, first off, how, how do you do interviews for somebody who died in 1849? There's nobody alive who knew Edgar Allan Poe. There's nobody alive who knew anybody who knew Edgar Allan Poe. So I approached that sort of using my years as a journalist and also using the skills of, say, a documentarian like a Ken Burns or something like that. And I went to all the leading experts on various aspects of Poe's life, people who have spent a lifetime studying just Poe's uh, relationship with, say, Baltimore, Philadelphia, or Boston, or Southern identity in Poe, or and just one particular, or his poetry. I took advantage of all those scholars that I was talking about and used their expertise to sort of probe Poe's psyche and his, his biography. And then I also went to various experts in various fields, forensic pathologists, forensic uh, archaeologists, an FBI agent, uh, crime writers, medical historians, all sorts of people that I could use to sort of examine uh, not only Poe's death, but also his life in sort of arriving at a theory as to how he may have died. Mm -hmm. So that was one uh, immense risk I took with this book because biographies aren't supposed to be written that way. But I didn't know, I, like I said before, I couldn't pretend to be a different kind of writer. And the other chance I took was something you've already mentioned, Bruce, which is the alternating chapters, the alternating timelines, alternating between a chapter that covers the last few months of his life with longer chapters, which look out at uh, different uh, different phases of his life until the two timelines meet at the end. And I present my theory as to how he may have died. That was taking another. I, most most biographies are written in a linear fashion. Uh, basically A to Z, you know, birth to death. And, and, and sure, most biographies logically will start where most biographies have to logically start, where, where somebody is born. And I didn't start there. And the reason I didn't start there is because our discussion of Poe rarely starts there. Mm. Most people don't even know that he was born in Boston. I think most people think he was probably born in Baltimore or, or Richmond, Virginia. Uh, but I didn't even start there because with most people, with discussion of somebody's life does start with the birth, but with Poe, it always seems to start with the death. We always seem to start there. Uh, we always seem to start with how he died. And there too, most people have tremendous misconceptions about that. Um, there's a uh, Chris Semter, who is the curator at the Poe Museum in, in Richmond, uh, Virginia. I think he says in the book something like uh, somebody who was taking the tour of 
the museum said at the beginning, uh, well, the only thing I know about Edgar Allan Poe is that he 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 died drunk in the gutter. And, and is Chris like, no part of that sentence is true. <laughs> if that's the case, then everything you know is wrong because no part of what you just said is true. You know, so, but we do seem to start the discussion with his death. And that is powerful stuff. It is very, very powerful because Poe, Poe's death, there are three great literary stage exits in history. You know, Moliere is the first. You know, Moliere was the, the, both a playwright and an actor. And Moliere dies of, of consumption. And as he's dying, they're premiering his final play. And he's in the play. So uh, he's, he's appearing on stage as he's dying. Hmm. He collapses. And they, 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 they take him off onto the wings. They revive him. They're not sure he's even going to live. He, he revives. He goes back. And he finishes the play. And then he goes home and dies. Well, oh, that wow. is a pretty good stage exit <laughs> for an actor-playwright, you know, uh, uh, Moliere. Then there's Twain, who it, correctly, having been born in 1835, in November of 1835, with Halley's Comet blazing in the night sky, he predicts he is going to die when Halley's Comet comes back in 1910. It's a called shot. It's like Babe Ruth calling the home run shot. And he pulls it off. You know, he dies when Halley's Comet comes back. He comes in with the comet and he goes out with the comet. And that's something which would not be out of place in Greek myth. And that's pretty, pretty impressive. But Poe in some way beats them all because Poe not only dies under a mystery that is enduring and has kept us talking about it, Poe dies in a method, under circumstances which reflect his two greatest literary achievements. Ray Bradbury once said that Poe took the horror story and he made literature out of it, hmm. uh, which is correct. But uh, Arthur Conan Doyle said the same thing about Poe and mystery, that Poe took mystery. Where was the mystery story before Poe breathed life into it? It was what Conan Doyle said. So... His two greatest literary achievements was basically the creation of the modern detective story and the modern horror story. And he dies under circumstances which reflect both. He leaves us with a mystery, not just a mystery, but a double-barreled mystery because there's the mystery of how Poe died. What did he die of? Mm -hmm. And missing days, the fact that he goes missing for six days before he's found and then lingers for a few days and dies. What happened to him during those no witnesses ever stepped forward to say so much as I saw him on the streets of Baltimore or I had a drink with him on the, the, the boat between Richmond and Baltimore? Nothing. There's never been anybody that's that those days are it's, it's a complete curtain that has descended over those days and they are completely shielded from our view. So Poe leaves us with a, the mystery and then he dies lingering. In a, in a hospital in Baltimore, uh, calling out, and this would not be out of place in one of his own horror stories. So Poe not only dies, you know, he has this great st stage exit, literary stage exit, he also dies in a way which reflects his two greatest literary achievements, which in some way, I think, betters Twain and Moliere. Mm. So that's, there, that's powerful stuff. Like I said, that, the death is powerful stuff. There is a reason we start there. There's no doubt that, in my mind, the alternating chapters was a risk on your part, but I really believe it works beautifully, and I'm not just saying that because we're interviewing you. I think it's true. 
I also think it worked relying on some of the scholars and you interviewed a number of leading post scholars. Uh, one of them is our mutual friend, Edward Pettit. He does such a great job with the Rosenbach Library and Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, he's hosted great programs online like Sundays with Dracula, Sundays with Frankenstein. I'm curious, what kind of specific insights did Ed Pettit give you? Well, Ed not only gave me great insights to, to Poe, you know, before I get to that, let, let me let's say I knew the Rosenbach before I knew Ed because I had done research there uh, about 20 years ago when I did my Dracula book. And the, the Rosenbach has Bram Stoker's Dracula notes. And so I spent uh, se several glorious days at the Rosenbach before Ed was there, I think. Mm. Uh, he was certainly not the curator uh, over the papers that, uh, that I talked to at the time. So I didn't meet him at that point, but I knew I knew the Rosenbach very well from my Dracula research. So um, when I was doing the uh, the the, the Poe biography, uh, I found Ed very very quickly, and the reason I wanted to talk to him was specifically I wanted to talk to him about uh, Poe's relationship to Philadelphia, and that's basically because uh, a lot of people don't even know. Poe has a connection to Philadelphia. If you, if Poe's life revolves around five Eastern seaboard American cities, Boston, he's born in Boston. So Boston, New York, he, he was living in New York for the last four or five years of his life. And that's where he was living, uh, where his residence was when he died. Baltimore, because he dies there, but he also lived there for uh, a few years in the, in the 1830s. Richmond, because he grows up there. So those are the four that most people, I mean, so, so Boston, New York, Baltimore, Richmond is, but the fifth city is Philadelphia and Philadelphia tends to get the short shrift, mm. but it's vitally important to Poe because Poe lives there from the late 1830s into the mid 1840s. And the important thing about that is it's not an inconsiderable amount of time he spends there, uh, you know, because he's there about seven years total and for a man who only lives to be 40 to spend seven years in one city, that's not an inconsiderable amount of time. Sure. But the important thing about those seven years is they're the glory years. This is when he writes most of the pieces that we know him for. Hmm. This is where he's, he's, he's writing most of the short stories that are, gonna, that are going to seal the deal for him as far as his enduring reputation goes. And Ed, was able, I encouraged every scholar I talked to not to talk like scholars, not to talk like academics and, you know, to sort of, you know, leave the stuffiness at the door and just to talk like real people. And yeah. how would you put this if you, nobody was better at this than Ed. Ed was just fantastic. I mean, he, he, he got it right away. He responded to it right away. And one of my favorite passages in the book is and and we he was so good that um I, I ended up quoting him on much more than just philadelphia i ended up quoting uh him on uh our misconceptions of poe our the the the, the dangers of, of of catering to the stereotype about poe but i when i asked him well how would you put the importance to philadelphia to poe's life and ed said something i'm paraphrasing now but he said something along the lines of like, look, when you go into the baseball hall of fame, you go in under the Jersey where the team 
that for which you put up your big numbers. Poe put up his big numbers here. Mm. There's no question he put up his big numbers in Philadelphia. I thought, what a great way to put this. There's no, <laughs> you know, you're not going to find that line in any biography of other biography of Poe. <laughs> And it comes directly from Ed is, you know, is, is he put up his big numbers in Philadelphia. And that's exactly right, by the way. And it's a way of putting it that everybody can understand and relate to. And it was a magnificent way of, of putting it. It, it and, and that's what I loved about those kinds of things. And when the Post scholars sort of uh, understood what I was going after and they would put things that way, it's a way of everybody relating to it. Not, not all of a sudden you're not talking to each other anymore. You're not just yeah. talking to, you know, one post scholar talking to another post scholar. That's a different language. How, how are you, how would you relate this to a broad general audience? Because as I, I pointed out, I'm not making, this is not a scholarly or academic biography. This is not written to be the standard academic work on Poe. There are better people for that, or at least there better be better people for that. I wrote this to be a popular biography. I've made no pretenses about that. I said that right from the start. I'm writing this this book like Poe wrote to be read. So, you know, I encouraged all of them to to, to speak not as academics to bring that economic, academic knowledge to the fore, but to, to to say it in a way which would have resonance. And and he was wonderful at that. He he was just just terrific. Well, he's so, he's a plain talker, which I love, and uh, we're planning to have him on a future show. I'm curious, which were the stories, or at least some of the stories, that Poe wrote while living in Philly? Uh, practically all Telltale Heart, uh, the the uh, all all the mysteries that 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 you know him for the Purloined Letter. Uh, murders in the Rue Morgue. Uh, so almost all of the the great horror stories. The about the only one he didn't write there is uh, the great the, the two great horror stories that he did not write in Philadelphia that he wrote a little bit later were uh, the Cask of Amontillado and a uh, Hop Frog, which is no, not as well known a post story, but I think it's one of his best. And those come out of the sort of the last years. Um, and the poetry is sort of at our, at our bookend his career because he starts out because Poe primarily thought of himself as a romantic poet. I mean, if you ask mm. Poe how he viewed himself, mm. he would have probably said as a Lord Byron was his hero. And, you know, he, he mimicked Byron's dressing in black and the romantics, cutting the romantic figure thing there. Um, but Poe starts off writing poetry. So you have this big amount of poetry at the beginning of his career, but then he sort of gets very, very busy working on magazines and writing a tremendous amount of criticism and such. And there isn't time uh, for the poetry. And then he's writing the short stories and such in, in mm. Philadelphia. And there just isn't the time to write uh, poetry as much. So he's not writing poetry as much. As he's getting ready to leave uh, Philadelphia, he has started work on the masterpiece. He started work on the Raven. Uh, you know, best evidence is he started it in Philadelphia and he finished it when he moved to New York um, and publishes it then. And uh, but even that's kind of an exception because he's not writing much poetry. He has this wonderful return to poetry at the end of his life. There's this new blossoming of of, of embracing his first love, and it's out of this period that we're going to get the bells. And Annabelle Lee mm. 
and El Dorado and some of his really is his finest poetry comes out of that last period. But Philadelphia unquestionably is uh, prime time as far as the, the, the short stories go. So, you know, the, and, and, you, and, and again, you get, uh, you know, the black cat, you get the telltale heart, you get the purloined letter, you get the murders in the Rue morgue, you get the pit and the pendulum, the house of Usher, uh, wow. all of these, you know, uh, come out, come out of that period. Uh, William Wilson, the mask of the red death, all of these are written while he's in Philadelphia. Oh, I've heard fascinating. Go ahead, Tracy. No, I was just going to say that's fascinating. I didn't even know that. This is this is such a learning experience for me. I'm learning a ton. I've heard you say, Mark, that your favorite horror work that he did was the cask of Amontillado. Why is that your choice? You know, uh, we performed the cask of Amontillado, uh, Sarah and I, uh, with her doing the the voice of. The noble Fortunato, and I'm doing, and I do the voice of Montresor, um, and and I, it's a wonderful monologue. I mean, right from the beginning, the thousand injuries of Fortunato I bore as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. Now you can't get a much better opening than that. <laughs> That's just wonderful. Um, so it's a great performance piece. But uh, it's also a wonderful study because Poe, in these kind of monologues that he does with these unreliable narrators, Poe, you know, that's one of the things we yeah, credit Poe with, with, with doing was, was not creating the unreliable narrator, but certainly uh, bringing it to foreign literature. And if you look at the Telltale Heart and the Cask of Amontillado, and to a lesser extent, the Mask of the Red Death, because that's told in the third person, the other two are first person narrations they are all three perfect monologues they all are about five thousand words mm. which means to you know read them out loud first to last takes about 12 15 minutes they're ideal performance pieces they are their ideal monologues and at the time poe didn't write for the theater poe had one failed attempt to write a play but the theater was not considered the outlet for literature at the time which is odd because, you know, we kind of already had Shakespeare. <laughs> you think more people would have thought, oh, maybe, but Dickens didn't. Dickens wrote like, like light burlesque vaudeville type pieces for the theater. It wasn't until the end of the, the 19th century that theater is again thought of as a respectable outlet for literature. And then you get hmm. Ibsen and, and, and Shaw and people like that uh, bringing back the horizons of, of the theater as literature. So Poe didn't write plays, but he did write perfect monologues. Poe was the son of actors. And this is another something else that most people don't, don't know about Poe is Poe's mother, Eliza, was the leading uh, young actress uh, in America. Uh, she died very young. She died in her 20s uh, and when Poe was not yet three years old. And, uh, but he inherited from his mother uh, an incredible work ethic uh, an incredible uh, artistic uh, level of, of, of achievement and um, versatility because she could do comedy, she could dance, she could sing, she could do tragedy, she could do Shakespeare, she could do and, and she could do a staggering amount of stuff. As, and he's going to be like that as a writer. So um, he and he also probably uh, inherited her flair for the dramatic, her, her flair for the theatrical. And that runs through his his monologues. If you listen, if you the Telltale Heart and the Cask of Amontillado, 
Poe doesn't tell you too much. He tells you that he, you know, both are about planned murders. Both are about people who set out to, to, to murder somebody. And there's a certain degree of obsession involved with both the murders. But in, in, in the case of the cask of Amontillado, you don't know what the insult was. All you know is that Fortunato has insulted him. And to the point that he's willing to plan a murder and then execute and, and an awful murder, he's going to, you know, lure the guy into the catacombs and wall him up alive in a tomb. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's a grisly story, mm. but it's also a very funny story. You know, one of the things about Poe's humor is if you're paying attention, it runs throughout his horror stories. In fact, fact there's some horror stories which we're not even sure whether he wrote them as satire of horror stories because the humor is so cleverly laced throughout the story. And the cask of Amontillado has tremendous moments of humor in them. And, you know, somebody once said that you can't, you don't know Poe until you read him out loud, that he was meant to be read out loud. And that's true. The poetry as well as the short stories. And when you perform the cask of Amontillado, you realize how many laughs there are in it. Hmm. There's this wonderful moment in the cask of Amontillado where Montresor has lured Fortunato into the family crypt under his homes, the catacombs under his home. And they're going deeper and deeper. And Fortunato has a cough. And Montresor keeps, you know, luring him in while he's saying to him the whole time, oh, your cough is terrible. We must go back. We must go back. Your, your, your health is precious. And you're important. And I'm not. And I can't be responsible. And you know, Fortunato keeps enough, enough, go on. You know, he keeps playing to his vanity and he keeps bringing him on and on and on deeper and deeper. And finally, he, he Fortunato has a, has a coughing fit. It takes him a couple minutes to recover from the coughing fit. And, and Montresor says to him, you know, you know, once more, let me implore you to return. He's giving him a chance to get out. He's giving him a chance. He's going to kill him, but he's giving him a chance to escape yeah. the trap. And he knows what he's doing. And Fortunato finally says, enough, enough. It is a mere nothing. I shall not die of a cough. That's a laugh line in and of itself. <laughs> then Poe goes a step further. Fortunato says, I shall not die of a cough. And he has Montresor say, true. <laughs> and he lets the word hang for a second in the air. He knows what he's doing. And when we perform that, the audience... They, they almost fall out of their chairs. They, they're laughing because it, it, it is a terrible, awful moment. <laughs> and yet it's very funny. Yeah, it's a it's a very funny moment. So this is that's one of the reasons that's my favorite story. But it's also because we perform it as much uh, often enough. And but I, I I think even given my personal uh, love of that story, I think the Cask of Amontillado would be top five on most people's list of Poe's best stories. It's up there with the Telltale Heart. We still have a few minutes remaining mm -hmm. with our terrific guests, Mark Dwidziak, author of A Mystery of Mystery, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. Let's get to one of the cruxes of the matter, Mark. Uh, his death at the age of 40 continues to be a source of mystery and confusion. We've heard this talk for years. He died because of alcoholism or rabies or even syphilis. In your book, you point out all of that is nonsense, correct? I don't say it's nonsense. I say, you know, you, you, you approach this as a detective and you approach this. I very much did approach this as a detective on a case. And you look at 
what are the most likely suspects and which are the least likely suspects. It's like rabies. You can't rule out anything. But rabies becomes very, very low on the list of suspects if Poe drank even a drop of water in his last days at the hospital. And it's apparent he took water, he took bouillon, he took soup, he took, you know, they, he took liquids. Well, if you have rabies, you develop hydrophobia. You, 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 you got aversion. You can't drink. You will foam at the mouth mm -hmm. at the very idea mm -hmm. of drinking if you, if you have that. If he took one drop of water, and secondly, you know, his body was examined when he was brought into the hospital. He it was a thorough examination. There was never a mention of a bite of any kind, a wound of any kind. In the absence of, of those two things, rabies drops way, way down on your list of suspects. You say, it's, it, you know, can you rule it out 100%? No, you can't rule it out any more than you can put anything in at 100%. But it goes way down and syphilis goes way down. With the information you know, certain things go way up and certain things go way down on the, the, your list of likelihoods. So, you know, there was a, there, a theory was put forth in the 1990s that he was murdered. Uh, and again, I, that's one of the theories I put way, way down on the list. And I do it through, you know, what evidence is available and what evidence is not available. So I put, you know, the... Basically, if you were a detective on the case and you had all of these possible causes that might have killed him, and I think we're up to something like 23 possible causes, and these, you, you, instead of treating these as causes, you treated them as suspects, you would then say, if you were a detective, which ones would you have back in the interrogation room again and again as your person of interest? Which one of these had the the, the most means an opportunity. You, you can't apply motive to a disease, but you can apply means and opportunity. So which of these possible causes had the most means and opportunity? And they're the ones we're going to have back in. Mm. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a primary suspect, uh, one person, one disease that is our primary person of interest. And then a couple of accomplices into all of this because before i said you know alcohol was not the problem that we thought it was it was a problem and you know could alcohol have been a contributing factor in his death absolutely could it have weakened his system because we know something about how poe drank poe is not somebody who drank all the time and he wasn't even a person who drank in large quantities when he did drink but he was probably allergic to alcohol because mm. all of the evidence of him drinking from college when he was at the University of Virginia as a young man all the way through, the evidence is fairly clear that it took very little alcohol to get Poe roaring drunk. He was not somebody who needed to drink, you know, four or five rounds. He'd take a sip of something and it was immediately like he'd been drinking forever. And he was not one of these types who savored a drink and sipped. He would charge the first one down, and then it was goodbye, Nelly. And not only did he get drunk very fast, he then took a long time to recover. Alcohol had a devastating effect on his system. It was not just a simple morning hangover for Mr. Poe when he was recovering from a bout of alcohol. So does alcohol stay in the room as an accomplice? Oh, yes, it does. You know, there's no way it does not stay in the room as an accomplice. You know, 
Do I think it's what killed him? No, I don't think it's what killed him. You do not draw a final conclusion about the specific cause of death, because really it's impossible to do at this point. But if you were to say, okay, this I think is the most reasonable explanation, what do you think that might be? Well, I say it in the book. I don't want to give it away for people who have not read the book. <laughs> uh, it's sort of like giving the way of the ending of the, you know, uh, but I, I, I will say I don't, I do, I do come up with one that I do think is the, is the cause. And I do think it is the, the primary person of interest. And I have a lot of medical experts and forensic uh, experts who agree, mm -hmm. who basically think that this is probably the most likely. But we also all agree that it, it can't be proven, Yeah, that it, that it is not something that can be definitively proven. And more importantly, you know, what I say in the book and, you know, uh, and this is something I, I will say, which is I don't want it to be solved. Who wants it solved? You know, one of the great enduring things is that Poe left us with a mystery. Once it's solved, all the romance goes out of it. All of the fascination goes out. If it's definitively solved one way or another, uh, it's it's going to be, you know, there's an old saying, some mysteries were not meant to be solved. Yeah. And I think this is one, you know, and like I said, I will give you my best guess and I will stand by my best guess. And I think it, um, again, it, the best case can be made for it. It is a circumstantial case, but circumstantial cases have been known to hold up in court. If your chain of evidence is persuasive enough, it wins the day. And you can win a, a, a case on circumstantial evidence. So I, I think I, I, I make a very strong circumstantial case. But even as much as I like the case, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to take that last step that says, uh, yes, um, I, I definitively say this is, this, is, this is what killed him. For those who want the answer, read that final chapter. But first, read everything before then, because it is a wonderful book. Final question. Uh, I'm curious about a biographical film mark about Edgar Allan Poe down down the road. We've seen obviously adaptations of his work. We saw really a fictional movie that came out a few years ago with John Cusack, uh, which was a pretty good movie, but really was not meant mm -hmm. to reflect real life. Do you think a biographical film about Edgar Allan Poe is both feasible, possible? Sure. I, I think Poe is more fascinating. The real Poe is more fascinating than the, the sort of the, and again, most of the, the, the biographical stuff that has been done about Poe has, has done exactly that. Now, the, the recent movie, Pale Blue Eye, which uh, centered on his West Point years, mm -hmm. uh, it too didn't quite get the real Poe, but it was closer to what the real Poe is probably like at that age. As, as a young man at West Point, as a young cadet at West Point, he's only at West Point for a few months. He, he, it does not last long. Mark, uh, referencing uh, the film that came out with Netflix uh, several months back, uh, The Pale Blue Eye, starring mm -hmm. Christian Bale, and uh, a terrific film without question, um, highly recommended. But again, as Mark indicates, it's probably not uh, the most accurate in terms of uh, a biography of of edgar edgar Allan poe um, hopefully we'll get uh mark on in a moment for our uh, concluding comments uh, we want to mention that the book a mystery of mysteries the death and life of edgar Allan poe 
is available at Amazon.com and also at the St. Martin's Press website. Uh, it's a comprehensive look at the life of the great writer, uh, including the many controversies, also the difficult relationships that he had during his all too short life. Uh, it is excellent, and it is a book that uh, we certainly uh, would highly recommend. Uh, one of 25 plus books that has been written by uh, Mark DeWidziak and uh, really a terrific book. I, uh, I tend to be a slow reader, but this one uh, really caught my fancy and uh, I was able to stay with it uh, pretty consistently. Read it within about a month and for me that is like speed reading, so I was certainly appreciative of that. Um, as we wait for Mark, want to mention that on one of our upcoming shows we'll be uh, talking to Edward Pettit, whom we referenced earlier. He is also an Edgar Allan Poe scholar uh, from the Rosenbach Library and Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, Edward has done uh, some terrific work, great programs on Dracula and Frankenstein in terms of the, the literary novels. And we're gonna talk to Edward about his interest in that and, and how he grew up as a monster kid. Uh, back in the 1970s. So that's something that we can look forward to uh, on a, uh, a future program. Again, Edward Pettit, who does such a great job at the Rosenbach Library and Museum in Philadelphia, and one of the uh, many literary uh, sources quoted in Mark DeWidziak's uh, book. Well, we'd like to thank our guest, Mark DeWidziak, the author of the terrific new book, A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. And if you're interested in getting the book, and we certainly highly recommend it, uh, it is available at Amazon.com, published by St. Martin's, so you can get it at the St. Martin's Press website as well. The book is a comprehensive look at the life of the great writer of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe, including the many controversies and the difficult relationships that he had during his all-too-brief life of 40 years. Uh, it is excellent, and it is highly recommended. Uh, we thank Mark for being with us over this last hour plus. We thank uh, Tracy Asteria as well for co-hosting and as always being our producer. We thank all of you for joining us for today's episode with Mark DeWidziak. And please join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery. <laughs>